Welcome to History Talk, the podcast that brings together a panel of experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. I'm your host, Mark Sikalski. When Western media turns its attention to the Middle East and North Africa, the question of women's rights frequently comes to the fore, and generally the overall impression is one that glosses over differences and complexities and ignores the region's long and fascinating history. Today on History Talk, we're joined by three experts, Joanna uh, Selman, Gusha Toronolu, and Sabra Weber, who will help us dig deeper into the history of women in the Middle East. We'll discuss how women's status and role in public life varies, and examine how this diverse and dynamic world is changing today. Hi, I'm Sabra Weber, and I'm a specialist in cultural anthropology and folklore, and concentrate especially on North Africa. Hi, my name is Johanna Selman. I'm a specialist in comparative literature and modern Arabic literature, and um, I'm Middle East Studies Librarian here um, at OSU. Uh, hi, I'm Dusha Tornolo. I'm a doctoral candidate uh, in the Department of History at The Ohio State University. At least in the West, uh, it's often believed that one of the greatest differences between Western and Middle Eastern societies is the role and uh, opportunities for women. Would you agree that one of the primary divisions between the Middle East and the quote-unquote West concerns gender, the treatment of women, and the place of women in society more broadly? And Gulsha, maybe we'll throw this question to you first. Uh, thank you for the question, Mark. Um, I think uh, such divisions can be uh, very arbitrary. So um, rather than maybe with reference to the dichotomies of East and West, traditional, modern, religious, secular, Western, indigenous, we need to evaluate the various manifestations of maybe democracies, secularism, and religion, and their implications for um, the treatment of women and their pl- and the place of women in society. I just want to give you an example. Um, in 2010, the National Assembly and the Senate of France passed an act prohibiting the concealment of face in public space. So this ban applies to burqa, which is a full body covering, and it applies to niqab and other veils covering the face in public spaces. Actually, it also applies to uh, motorcycle masks and helmets. So anything that covers your face, so then applies to that. And there was another French law and secularity and conspicuous religious symbols in schools, and that law banned wearing Islamic veiling and headscarves in schools. And obviously, the law was taken to the European Court of Human Rights, which upheld the French law in 2014 and accepted um, French government's argument that the law was based on a certain idea of living together. As you can imagine, laws sparked mixed responses, but proponents of the law cited gender equality and women's emancipation as their primary goal. Um, I mean, some of them, some of the Islamic women that I've talked in Egypt, even, they find scholarly obsession with will uh, not only insulting, but patronizing. So the dilemma that we were talking about, East and West, is really ironic. You can see that Sarkozy says whale denies women personhood. And other Muslim women says no, whale define my personhood. Okay, great. Thanks, Gosha. Sabra or Johanna, would you like to jump in here? Sure. Um, I think one thing when we get these, you know, certainly the idea of 
women being kind of at the center of the fault line between the so-called East and so-called West. I think it's important for us to problematize this notion and also place it in its proper proper history um, with with the Middle East, such as um, women's opportunities to work or to participate in public and and political life. These are... um, we're, they're not very far from us here in the so-called West either. Um, if we think if we think about um, women's women's access to the public space here in the United States or um, or in um, or in Europe, women's ability to own property, participate in public life. Um, so I think you know many of the assumptions that people are making when when they talk about you know women and the West are. Um, are predicated on a, on a pretty recent ex- experience of women having certain opportunities, and certainly many of the challenges remain with us here in the so-called West today as well. And I think it's also important to remember that many of the, you know, um, Gulsa mentioned, you know, the practice of veiling. Um, so man- many of the practices that are associated with wi- with women in Islam, these are um, practices that were not originally Islamic, but, but you know, part of regional practices, part of Christian uh, Zoroastrian practices of of you know secluding women and 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 veiling women, and they were adopted um, as Islam spread spread around the region. And I think it's also important to remember that probably for a you know it's hard to generalize across <clears throat> across space and time, but probably for a, you know the better part of Islamic history, women had comparable or, or probably better um, better opportunities um, in in the Middle East and in in, in the Islamic world than in, than women in Europe, especially um, in regards to property property rights. You mentioned adoption of certain practices prevalent in, among Zoroastrianism and, and uh, Christianity. Think, right. When are we talking? Like sort of eighth, ninth century, or right? So early. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not a historian of the medieval period, but I know. Mm-hmm. But I know that a lot of the um, veiling, for example, was practiced. Veiling and seclusion was practiced in many um, in, in the Christ, in Christian uh, Christian um, communities of, of that of that period. When the, when the Arabs conquered the area that w- of Persia, they incorporated a lot of the traditions coming um, that that were prevalent in that in that area, including including certain types of veiling and, and seclusion of women that were not as prevalent as I understand it in in Arabia. Mm-hmm. Right, and don't forget the Greeks, uh, the Greeks, right. the early Greeks had veiling. The women were veiled. The upper class women. It mm-hmm. was a class. Mm-hmm. It was a class issue, mm-hmm. and also Egyptian women back in that day did not veil. So, um, you know, it's, as Johanna said, I'm just trying to, um, echo what she's already said, that the veil itself is a pre-Islamic practice. While we're on the subject of the veil, was the veil a touchstone for women's rights in the Middle East at any point? Or is this something that, uh, you know, outsiders have sort of imposed on, on the region as a kind of mark of distinction? For some women, it was a touchstone. But, mm-hmm. I mean, I think this gets us into the whole issue of, again, that was also already mentioned by my colleagues here, that there's so much diversity in terms of how women's rights are perceived in the Middle East, not just among countries, but within countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leila Abouzid has a nice um, quote. She's a, a novelist in Morocco. She says diversity in attitude, strategy, and dress. I mean, some people, there's one quote that I read. I unfortunately can't remember who said it, but she said, my veil does not suck my brains out of my head. <laughs> so um, hmm. uh, similarly in Ataturk's um, Turkey, there was a time when men were not expected to wear hats with brims, mm-hmm. which in, 
which then uh, worked against their ability to pray, to touch their head to the ground. Mm. So it wasn't just women. It's just that women somehow seemed to take on the brunt of being representative of either nations or religions or um, and not just obviously in the Middle East, but also um, here in the United States. Hmm. So, Right. And I think, you know, you can look to certain historical contexts when the act of putting on the veil was an act of resistance. For example, during the during the Iranian Revolution, when um, some women who were on, you know, on, on the leftist side adopted the veil in order to signal their opposition to, to the Shah. So I think it's always, you know, when you're talking about the veil, it's always important to look at the look at the context and see what the veil is signifying in that context. And Sabra, I wonder if I could ask you about the Maghreb and your experiences there. Um, does this come into play at all in, in um, what you uh, saw, witnessed in that part of the world? Um, thank you for asking about the Maghreb. My personal experience in the Maghreb has been mostly in Tunisia. As a cultural anthropologist, I lived with a family over many years, starting in 1967, a Muslim family. I saw many changes during that time in applications of the what's the veil, which is called safari, the the uh, traditional veil in Tunisia. At the time I got there, it was not too long after independence. So then we saw that um, the younger generation were all going to school. Boys and girls were going to school together. The girls no longer were putting on the veil, except maybe in the far countryside. It was not common at all. It waxes and wanes. So your question about Egypt, um, in 1919, when the Egyptian women were helping with the uh, resistance against uh, the United Kingdom, they took off their veils at one point and threw them in the Mediterranean as a gesture towards a new kind of Egypt. Hmm. So, and then, you know, later on, you see many Egyptian women putting veils back on, of some kind of covering back on, of one sort or another. And in Algeria, was it uh, a sign of resistance against the French to wear the veil? Oh, well, in Algeria, the women were... Um, extremely active in the re- resistance to the French. So sometimes they wore the veil so that they could smuggle weapons of one mm-hmm. sort or another. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they took off the veil so that they would be disguised as French women. Yeah, just to quickly add to that, uh, in Turkey, the headscarf issue has been um, a problem uh, since the Kemalist reforms um, because Mustafa Kemal Atatürk banned veiling early on. Uh, with the Constitution of 1924. And later, this has become a problem uh, for women who wanted to receive education but uh, are not admitted to university buildings because they are wearing a headscarf. Uh, in 1968, um, a public university student refused to remove headscarf in university buildings and uh, a lot of Turkish students, female students, they were banned for from universities for wearing a headscarf, which kind of uh, resulted in um, enrolling in religious schools so that they can wear their headscarf. Uh, and in 1999, for example, um, one of the representatives uh, was prevented from taking her oath in the Turkish National Assembly because she was wearing a headscarf. And these problems uh, persistent uh, have have continued since lately, uh, and, and there were a lot of attempts at lifting the ban. 
uh, and uh, more liberal progressives also contributed uh, to these discussions. And they argued that uh, whaling and headscarves should be lifted so that everyone should have equal opportunity for uh, education. Just given all of this diversity, uh, you know, across different parts of the Middle East and North Africa, would you say that it even makes sense to talk about Islam as the as the or one of the decisive factors in shaping the place of women in in these societies? Um, you know, for example, how is it that in Pakistan, which is not the Middle East, but we'll include it here, uh, a woman can be prime minister, but in Saudi Arabia, women can't drive cars. How do we explain this uh, this difference? I guess I'll try a little bit and then see what my colleagues have to say. But I think that, of course, Islam, for anybody that is a practicing serious Muslim, it does make a difference what you think your religion is expecting of you. But if you, again, if you if you even turn back to the, um, the quote that I mentioned about diversity and attitude, strategy, and dress, that also goes for Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Um, There's so many different ways uh, that they interpret what their religious duties are, or if they are, if you think about Christianity here in the West, how religious are you? So when you talk about someone being the president of a country mm-hmm. and being a Muslim, I mean, I think I would venture to say that in some areas in the Middle East, at least in the Lebanon, for example, mm-hmm. more than fifty percent of the of the um, doctors and the engineers in Lebanon at one point in the nineteen late nineteen hundreds, more than fifty percent were women doctors. That's more than here. Hmm. Um, in Morocco, twenty percent of the judges are women. Hmm. Um, you, these figures may they change rapidly, but if someone wanted to do some research. Um, to how many women serve in the Egyptian parliament, for example, that has been um, sometimes more than are serving in our legislatures here. Right. And I, I, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot to, to say about this. I'm thinking um, the example of women not driving in Saudi Arabia. I mean, the, the Gulf countries are often held up as the countries with, with, the, you know, the area where women maybe face the most, um, perhaps the most challenges but in terms of segregation and access to to public life, at the same time, um, the fact that there has been uh, relatively strict segregation between between men and women has meant that there has been there have been a lot of opportunities for employment for women within women's spaces as as teachers or doctors or you know various various professions and outside of you know I should say outside of those professions as as well. Um, if we look at the past, you know. Th- 30, 40 years or so, you know, have, why, you know, and think about why has um, Islam played such a central role now? I think it's really important to look at the perception of the failure of these secular state projects, especially in, in, the, in the Arab world, and the resurgence of, of Islamist movements and, and, um, and, and Islamism in all, all its forms is kind of a remedy for for society, um, a, a way to move forward after after um, seeing that you know many of these you know Arab nationalism and many of these these regimes have you know failed to provide you know economic development and democracy and so you know if, if we look at you know, the past the past thirty years ago or, or so certainly after nineteen sixty seven in the Arab world and the, you know the expansion of, of Islamist movements this you know the way that we're looking at you know talking about women in Islam these days has a lot to do with 
with the perception that the secular state has failed? Right now, it's very difficult um, to define what Islam is. I mean, we are talking about Islamic women, Islamic feminism, um, Islamic activism, radical Islam, and all of that. But we cannot define what Islam is. Um, so I think, uh, first, we need to be clear about these terms, how we use these terms. Um, because um, the, um, the, the, at the core of this, debate is Islamic law, which is Sharia, uh, which is more of a reference system for a law than a complete and closed system of commandments. So there are a lot of rooms for interpretation of religious knowledge. There's a lot of room for interpretation of personal status laws. And this is this directly affects women's status in society. Just in terms of the Sharia law, mm-hmm. how much of it is applied in different places in different countries is really something that people should look at too because for example um, Tunisia and Turkey and to a certain extent Morocco Mm -hmm. they've done a lot of revisions in the area of um, family law Mm -hmm. so things that have to do with divorce that have to do with child custody that have to do I don't think really they're any more positive or negative or complex than the kinds of laws that people here go through mm-hmm. or have to navigate when they're um, getting a divorce or worried about child custody. I think it's um, in both cases, I don't think that anybody's come up with a good solution, really. And I just wanted to mention, too, that in, you know, in different countries in, in the Middle East, states have often used family codes and, and laws pertaining to women in order, in order to bolster their own legitimacy. And if we look at Iraq, for example, Iraq in the 1950s had a very progressive um, family code and, and um, laws relating to marriage and divorce and inheritance and so on, so on for women. And in 1991, of course, after the Gulf War, when, when Iraq, um, you know, lost the war trying to, trying to gain, yeah, with, with Kuwait, they, um, you know, there was a crisis of legitimacy, and one of the things that the Iraqi government did then was drastically change the family co- code in, in order to appease Islamist movements within Iraq. Now, did the women's movement uh, play a major role in the uh, secularism of the middle of the 20th century in the Arab states or in Turkey? Or was it something, as you say, something uh, that leaders used to sort of buttress legitimacy? So I think there's it's a it's a very yeah, very complex question. I think yes, yes and no. Um, one of the challenges that women's movements have and women in general, I think, have faced in, in the Middle East has been the kind of state co-optation of women's movements, what you might call state state feminism. Ellen Fleischman, who's um, at Dayton University, talks talks about this in in, um, in her book, where she kind of categorizes three stages of of women's movements in the in the Middle East, kind of early twentieth century, beginning with what she calls an awakening, which is kind of both women and men starting to question the role of women, traditional roles of women in society. And then that moves into um, more of a nationalist discourse where the liberation of women is connected to the liberation of, of the nation. And then she defines the third stage as basically a co-optation of the state of women's movement and the formation of different kinds of state um, state feminisms kind of in the, the mid the mid 20th century. There is also this history of, of, of um, say, in Iraq and Syria, for example, and, and the Maghreb of, of the states 
um, appropriating women's movements and making them, you know, only accessible to certain women, maybe upper class women, and also affiliating them with these um, more or less autocratic regimes. Um, Just to give you an example from Egypt, feminism in Egypt, um, Nasser encouraged women working outside the home for wages and offered women greater educational opportunities. Uh, I mean, literally, the number of girls enrolled in primary and high schools rose rapidly, and women's literacy rate increased. And at the same time, we, we see that his regime promulgated new progressive labor laws, giving legal rights and special protection to working women, including health care, paid maternity leave, and child care services. Uh, Atatürk's, Muslim Kemal Atatürk's feminism is also... Adopt as state feminism in Turkey, and it's criticized um, because they were autocratic. Um, but I mean, to, I I think that state feminism worked for both Egypt and Turkey. Uh, I mean, we can see the fruits. Uh, we can see. I mean, the present day um, status of women in both countries are a great example to that. How does the the role of women in nationalism in uh, Arab or Turkish nationalism compared to their role during the Arab uh, Arab Spring over the past five years or so? Well, depending on their age, they're involved in different ways, okay? So that the older generation tends to concentrate more on um, uh, chants or songs or or poet poetry and so forth. Whereas the younger generation is much more able to use YouTube and to actually expose different kinds of things that are going on to the world um, through YouTube and also through um, uh, various kinds of blogs online. For example, during the Arab, uh, well, during the invasion of, Ir- of Iraq by the United States, there was a woman blogging, an Iraqi woman blogging. Her name was her blog name was Riverbend. If anybody wants to look up her blog, I just want to emphasize that women sometimes join up with people who are of the same political mind as they are, mm-hmm. and cleverly resist in ways that are not necessarily at all violent, that are actually more um, expressive cultural. As a folklorist, I guess I can bring in some of the ways that women forever have resisted taking a certain place in their culture that they're thought to, they are supposed to inhabit. Look at any folk tales, any Arab world folk tales, but look at the women are strong, the women travel everywhere, the women choose their husbands, the women are some, oftentimes smarter than the men. And, um, this is not, this is nothing new. I mean, I think that's why when, when the young girls started being able to go to school, why they were ready already. Looking forward, in what ways do you think women's roles uh, are changing in the Middle East right now in the wake of the Arab Spring, the proliferation of social media and so on? Uh, Johanna, maybe I could throw this to you. I think, you know, um, especially if we look at the Arab world right now, obviously post Arab Spring, there's a lot of conflict. And, you know, whenever you have, viol- you know, violent conflict and war, you know, any anywhere that takes place, you know, that, that poses um, particular challenges for women as often not being the main combatants, but 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 usually being profoundly affected by the war and the wars and the violence also on the one hand, um, 
you know, right now it's a, a very challenging time for a lot of women. On the, on the other hand, um, I think it's also a time where we're seeing really interesting thing happening in terms of uh, women's expression and women's movements. For you know, looking at Arabic literature, for example, right now, this is a time of like a flourishing of women's literature right now, especially from the 1990s and and onward. And then the the access that um, you know the access to information that we have and the access to putting ideas out there is is just kind of um, unprecedented right now. So I think it's a very interesting time for. Uh, for women connecting with each other and get, getting their ideas out, either you know in, in the forms of, of, of literature or art. I think Johanna said it very well. I just think I'd like to emphasize, because we talked earlier a little bit, or Johanna did about class, I think that this new access to access to the new media is really important for um, allowing in a very, very widespread access to autonomous voice. Mm-hmm. And people now have a voice who did not have a voice before mm-hmm. that either had to speak through someone like me as a cultural anthropologist and then I say what they said. Mm-hmm. Now they're right there in front and center. Mm-hmm. They can do a YouTube. They can do a, a blog. Uh, yeah, just to add to that uh, last question. Um, during the Arab Revolution, um, we have new forms of uh, human rights activism emerged. Um, we see that uh, there are new alliances uh, that are formed among different uh, women's rights groups. So one of them is called the Coalition of Feminist Organizations in Egypt, uh, which is established in 2011. And this is uh, composed of uh, 16 uh, feminist groups at the beginning, and then the uh, number uh, rose in, in different um, occasions. So uh, the Coalition of Feminist Organizations um, composed of 16 groups, and this is a very remarkable and very exciting, um, very exciting thing that happened during uh, the Arab Revolution, because we see that feminist groups, um, different feminist groups, are coming together and they sit together um, to discuss their problems. It provided a platform to them. Um, but at the same time, um, they it does make their differences more clear. Uh, for example, when they discuss the personal status law, or how are we going to reform the personal status law, uh, they cannot always agree. So they sometimes say, do we take human rights and or non-religious humanism as a point of reference when we reform the personal status law, or do we take Islam as a point of reference? So the compromise is usually a combination of human rights and enlightened interpretation of religion. So, um, I mean, there are some exciting uh, things that are happening uh, among the women's rights organizations, new alliances, new forms of women's rights activism. But at the same time, we see that uh, some older debates about religion just come to surface again. But we better wrap it up there. Our guests today have been Johanna Selman, Assistant Professor and Middle East Librarian at Ohio State University, Gulsha Toronoglu, PhD candidate in Middle Eastern and Islamic History at OSU, and Sabre Weber, Professor of Cultural Anthropology and Folklore here at OSU. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. 
This edition of the Origins Podcast History Talk was brought to you by the Public History Initiative and the Goldberg Center in the History Department at The Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are Stephen Kahn and Nicholas Breifogel. Our executive producer is David Staley. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Koheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Patrick Payandi and Mark Sikolsky. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcast and more at origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, and on SoundCloud. And as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. Thank you for listening.